Please go ahead and open it to Matthew uh, chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to do the whole chapter, but I want to look specifically this morning at verses uh, 13 through 23 with you. Uh, So go ahead and find that. Now, if you're brand new today, or if you've missed a little bit, because this is the season of vacations and enjoying good weather when it's there and and all that kind of stuff, uh, last week what we talked about is being disillusioned. And what I had talked about with you last week is this, in a noun form, is this idea of being disappointed, resulting from the discovery that something is not uh, as good as you thought it would be, or in the verb format, causing someone to realize that their belief and ideas were false. And last week what we talked about with this disillusionment is that these scribes and these Pharisees were under the illusion that their righteous acts, their self-righteous deeds, their religious practices were going to be enough to save them. And Jesus comes in and very clearly explains that that is actually an illusion, and he disillusions them. And we talked about some of those things can sometimes be difficult for us, but in this sense, that's a good thing for us to have our illusion of self-righteousness taken away so we can see for ourselves how truly wretched we are before a holy God. Well, today's message is titled Unstoppable. So I want to ask you, dealing with disillusionment as we move into something that's unstoppable, how many of you have been part of something that you thought was really going to take off only to have it fail? Now, maybe that was something small, like you know you were really looking forward to uh, a soapbox derby and it ended up that the, your soapbox was, didn't have enough derby in it. Or maybe it was something big, right? Maybe it was a, a job that you were part of something. Or maybe you launched a company. Or like we talked about last week, maybe unfortunately we're even talking about marriage. You were, wanted to be part of something bigger, but it didn't seem to work. Well, the fact of the matter is we all want to be part of something bigger. I think that's one of the draws to why people meet together in church services. Of course, in Hebrews we are told that we should be doing that. And if you watched Ask the Pastor this last week, We had a question about that that I'm not sure I handled as well as maybe I ought to have, but history will be a judge of that, I guess. But the fact of the matter is, all of us want to be part of something bigger, and all of us want to be part of something bigger that is successful. Well, today, I hope to give you a word of encouragement because I want to invite you to be part of something that's not only bigger than you, but is absolutely unstoppable. And I think your heart cries for that. Your heart longs for that. Your soul desires that. That's my argument, at least, and I hope that you can go with me through today's text, and I might be able to prove that out by God's word, not just my own opinion. So before we do that, would you join with me in a, in a word of prayer? Almighty God in heaven, we pray that you would grant us your illumination in our hearts by your word. God, as we came last week, we heard again and were reminded even this morning of how great and grievous our poverty before you really is. Teach us to deny ourselves and seek after you so as not to hope in ourselves alone, but rather rest fully in Christ. By your mercies, let us be cast down in all humble meekness that we might rise in glory with the one who saves. We praise you, our God and Father. We praise you and we praise the Son. We praise the Holy Spirit. We praise the Son who is the great Redeemer of the church. And that what he has established will stand forever. We ask that you would now let us go to your word, Matthew 16, to be reminded and encouraged of your goodness, your faithfulness, your power, 
in your eternal steadfastness in covenant relationship with all of us who you would call your church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if this was already given away or not. I hope I don't steal my own thunder, but what I'm talking about this morning is the church. I think the church is what's unstoppable. And I want to invite you to be a part of it. Not just a member of Allegan Bible Church, although maybe that's something you and I can talk about with at another time. I'm talking about the church, the church of Christ. Jesus' established church. And so I want to tell you the first thing, that this church of Christ, which is unstoppable, as we see in the text, first we see that Christ's church is a community of people who know Jesus unambiguously. Now, the word ambiguous, in, in case you're unsure about that, uh, is, means you know, unclearly, falsely, wrongly, uh, with uh, you know, clouded understanding. So this is a community of people who know Jesus unambiguously. I want to show you that in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 to begin. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. See, the fact of the matter is, if you have a copy of God's Word, it's not up here on the screen, but if you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can turn back a little farther to the first couple verses of Matthew 16, and you can see that the Pharisees are part of what spurs this conversation. They come and they ask for a sign. Now, Jesus earlier tells them a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. And I want to ask you today, I'm doing that. Sometimes I find myself asking for a sign. Jesus, could you just show me X? Or, God, I would, I would really know what to do if you would just do Y. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. But he tells them no sign is going to be given you except for the sign of Jonah which, of course, is the sign that he will provide not only to them, but to all of history, as we're going to see as we move forward through Matthew. But I want to start with asking this question. Are you still asking for a sign? Are you still asking for some kind of proof? Because that's what they did, too. And, in fact, look at the confusion in the text here that is on the screen. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, they, he, he talks about with them about you can see the sky and you can tell what kind of day it's supposed to be, but then you look at me, you look at the things that I've done, and you still don't understand who I am. Now, I guess the good news is, is that, that these Pharisees, these scribes, they weren't totally alone in that, but sometimes I think we are under the same unfortunate misconception. We have the Bible. We have Genesis all the way through Revelation. We have Christ prophesied in the old, Christ here in the new, and then Christ's prediction to come. And yet, sometimes, if you're anything like me, you still from time to time say, but could I have a sign? Matthew 27. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey them? So they, they knew that he was a man, but they were still missing it. You see, the church is a community of people who believe or trust in Christ unambiguously. Matthew 13, 55-56, they would ask this question in his own hometown. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get this wisdom and these teachings? They knew that he wasn't a seminary student. They didn't have seminary back then. I'm not sure you need seminary to be a preacher, just by the way. I think all you need is a copy of God's Word and some knees that are willing to bend to the floor. 
But the fact of the matter is, they know Jesus. They grew up with Jesus. They played with Jesus in the street, right? They saw Jesus taking out the laundry. They saw him building chairs or building bricks or whatever it was that he was doing as carpentry. Or at least they thought they knew Jesus. Matthew eleven two through 3. Now when John, his cousin, who baptized him, who saw heavens opened, who saw the dove descend on him. When John was in a predicament, in a pickle, remember when he was in prison, if I can be preacher and make them all peas, John heard in prison about these deeds of Christ, and he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, he was almost, almost asking for a sign. Now Jesus, in his mercy and in his graciousness towards John, said, Go back and tell John what you see. The lame are healed, the dead are raised, people who can't hear, hear, right? People who can't speak, speak. Of course I'm the one who's supposed to be here. Of course you shouldn't wait for another one. As Jeff Foxworthy, no, not Jeff, right? The other guy, Rich Ingvall or whatever, there's your sign. I don't know which one it is. You can Google it. Matthew 14, 1 through 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, remember this? This was just recently heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. You see, when we talk about who Jesus is, his people need to understand him and believe in him unambiguously. They need to understand who Jesus is. And there's the fact of who Jesus was. He was a man who was born several thousand years ago, was a Jew, was a carpenter, his mother Mary, his dad Joseph, you know, earthly father Joseph. They knew the facts. And then there's the fiction There's the fiction of Jesus, right? That he's John the Baptist reincarnated, or he's just a good prophet, as one of the false religions might teach. He's just an exalted prophet. Or as another false religion might teach, right? He's he's Michael the archangel who's who's come and and now on the world. Or, Or all the other false beliefs of Jesus. So there's the fact of who he was, and there's the fiction of who he was, and then there's the part that we must accept just by faith. He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, I believe he proved that out in his death, burial, and resurrection. But the fact of the matter is, I guess, we didn't see it, did we? But as he said to Thomas, blessed are those who believe without sight. The fact is, a true understanding of Christ comes not from human invention, but rather from divine intercession. As we're going to look, Jesus asks for a confession from those who would follow him. He says to them in 15 through 17, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So let's not talk about what the world says that he is. Let's not talk about what those who don't believe in him says that he is. That's what he's asking them. Who do they say that I am? They've got it all jumbled up. They've, they, they have an ambiguous view of who Jesus is. But what he wants to know, and the question he's asking them is the question I would ask you this morning is, but who do you say that he is? Because the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter who I say he is. It's who you say he is. Because when I die, I'm not going to be judged for what you think Jesus is or who you think he is. You're going to be judged for who you think Jesus is and how you interact with that. And I'm going to be judged for who I think he is and how I interact with him. So he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, I love Simon. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, the fact of the matter is, anybody can see that he's a man. But it takes divine intervention, it takes divine inspiration to see that he is also the Messiah. 
And so I would ask you this morning, if the church is made up of a people who believe Jesus or trust Jesus or whatever the thing was, I lost my point here, people who know Jesus, it's pretty important for us to get the point right, unambiguously, then who do you say that he is? John 1, I'm sorry, John 1, 41, and then a little bit later, John 1, 49, these brothers confess this. The first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. What's different about this confession, though, in this scripture today, is that Jesus is asking for it. This is where the rubber meets the road for him and his disciples. He hasn't asked before who they believe him to be until now. This is where the ambiguity of who he is has to disappear. This is where Matthew shifts gears, so to speak. And the good news about this confession is it points us to our own. So today's the day where your ambiguity has to disappear. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Today is the day of your invitation. Whether you've been here 20 years or just today. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or whether you're not even sure this morning, I offer you an invitation. What's your confession? Romans 10, 9, through, uh, 10, 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses. We are justified and saved, it says. 1 John 2, 18 through 23. If you're a note taker and you don't have a copy of today's notes, you can write that down and look at that later if you want to. I want to take you into that section. But really, verse 22, uh, we'll start with verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Those are some strong words, and that's not me. That's your Bible. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. See, my friend, a true understanding of Christ comes only from divine revelation. This is the text where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? This is where they're required to give an answer. And so I would ask you simply, what's your answer this morning? I hope the way that you will respond to this question is without ambiguity. The second point that I want to take you through for this text today is a community of people, the Church of Christ, this unstoppable Church of Christ, is made up of a community of people who proclaim Jesus unshakably. Unshakably. Verses 18 and 19 is where we're going to begin and tease this out from here. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, are you guys ready? I'm going to give you some opportunity for some amens. So raise your sleeves up, prepare yourself, okay? The first is this. The Messiah himself is completely unstoppable. Sin cannot destroy the church. Satan cannot destroy the church. People cannot destroy the church. They may get in the way of the church. And they may give the church a bad name. And perhaps you are here this morning because you have been wounded by somebody who is a part of this church, 
but yet didn't act like Christ. And for that, I'm going to tell you, hey, welcome to the club. But that doesn't change Jesus, and that doesn't change his church. Because the fact of the matter is what he says right here. He says, I will build my church. There you go. Okay, there it was. We're warming up. That's the first one. That's a slow pitch. But he says here, I will build my church. And also what he says, and the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In essence, I want to paint for you a picture. Jesus is now on the scene. And as he walks down to the gates of hell, he has on the full armor of God. Of course he does. And so with his head clad and his feet shorn and his shield in his hand, he walks down this pathway as the demons be in front of him on the ramparts of the kingdom shoot their flaming darts at him and all they can do is glance to the left and the right as he strides one foot after another. Complete silence in hell as they watch their biggest fears coming before them as he strides confidently with the clink of his armor in every single step until he gets to the door. Ironclad and wood-bound, he takes one swipe with his mighty sword and cuts it asunder. And with his other boot, kicks it open to reveal Satan cowering on his throne. Rage and spittle foaming at his mouth as Jesus walks up, throws him down, binds him, places his foot upon his neck and prepares for his ascension back to earth. That's a good place for an amen to give. You see, the Messiah is unstoppable. He says, not even the gates of hell are going to prevail against it. Satan can't destroy the church. People can't destroy the church. And by the way, this is the first time in Scripture Jesus mentions the church. It's this idea of ecclesia, right? Which is, is Greek, and that's all good and stuff if we want to get into all that. But what you need to understand is this. This is the first time Jesus says he's going to establish the church. And whose church is it? His. In fact, the word ecclesia is this idea of gathering, a meeting together of people. He's talking about us this very morning. Do you understand that? Not only is the Messiah unstoppable, but he gives this authority to the church. Look with me at the text. He says, I'm going to build this church. The gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it, and I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The church has authority, authority to open, but open what? I believe it's to open the door of faith. John 10, 7 through 9, or John 14, 6. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go out and find pastor. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus came to establish his church that all the world might receive faith through the proclamation of the gospel that the church is about the business of doing, or at least should be. So he gave authority to open, open the door, set free the captives, loose the chains of those who are in bondage. He also gave authority to overcome. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, 18, And the living one, I died, and behold, I live forevermore, and I have keys of death and Hades. That was the last thing he did on his way back out. Now, I don't really know if Jesus went down to hell or not. 
That's a theological topic for another day. You buy me coffee, we'll talk about it, okay? But in my mind, and the way I just described that to you, you can visualize it. And on the way out, if your house is anything like mine, he grabs the key on his way, just in case they decide to build another door. Revelation 3.7, an angel of the church in Philadelphia wrote, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And he gives that authority to the church. That we can overcome. By the grace of God, the church can be a band of brothers and sisters that can gather together with all of our afflictions, all of our warts, all of our scars, and we can say, yes, but do you know what? We're still more than conquerors in Christ where we can hold each other accountable to the victories in Christ, where we can pursue those victories together. And then lastly, he gives the church authority to oppose. Authority to oppose false teachers or even satanic powers. These 12 in Matthew 10, earlier we talked about this in passing, but these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep, of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And in Matthew 12, just a little bit earlier, 22 through 30, he talks about the kingdom divided as they accused him. You're casting out demons by the prince of demons. He says, no way, man. That's John's translation of Scripture. <laughs> no way, man. How can, de- how, how can Satan's kingdom be divided? If that's the case, then he's a fool. But I'm here to tell you that the kingdom of God is upon you. And then he talks about binding up and plundering the strong man. So not only is there power in our Messiah that he gives, and that's why we can proclaim Jesus unshakably, but there's also a promise so the people who proclaim Jesus unshakably, they do so because they have the power of Christ. But also, if that's not enough for you, it's because you have the promise of Christ. This rock of the church. Now, this is not a text talking about the Pope. I'm sorry. If you have Catholic friends that want to argue the point, tell them to listen to this message. I'm going to go over it very quickly. But the fact of the matter is, it's not the Pope. The fact of the matter is, the rock is Jesus. The rock is the gospel, the good news of Christ. And that's what he's telling Peter. They get confused with that because he calls his name a stone. But did you know that Jesus in his scripture, written by others, he also calls us stones. We are living stones. We're all Peters. And I don't know about you, but I put my foot in my mouth just like Peter did. So I can relate. But Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock, not Dwayne Johnson, okay? Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock whose work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Who's the rock? It's God. Let's proceed, right? Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Or later in Psalm 18, verse 31. For who is God but the Lord and who is the rock except our God? Even Peter himself would later in 1 Peter write about this. And he would say in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, as you come to him, a living stone, there it is, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, a chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A court. Now, by the way, if you have a copy of God's Word and you look this up, you're going to see that in First Peter, he was actually quoting Old Testament Scriptures. I think one of which is in Isaiah. Another one might be in Ezekiel. You'll have to check that. If you have a study Bible, you can check that. I didn't write it down here. For it stands in Scripture, Old Testament prophecy, right? Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, because he is the rock. And then Acts 4.10-12, you can look that up, that's a freebie for you. So the fact of the matter is the promise, the promise is we don't have to rely on men for the church of Christ. Praise God. That's a good place for an amen, by the way. We don't have to worry about a pope. You don't have to worry about a pastor. If I die tomorrow or if I sin so grievously that I am found to be inadequate for the pulpit tomorrow, this church will continue on. Do you know why? Because it's Christ's church. Because it's his power. It's his promise. It's his word because he's the rock of our salvation. Towards the end of this section, we'll put a pin in that. Jesus freely gives this power of faith to all those who would follow him. He gives this power of faith both to those disciples and to us today. And so I just want to ask you this morning, will will you receive it? I mean, have you received it? Do you long for it? And, and, And by the way, then, will you proclaim it? Because it says that this is the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so I want to ask you, if the community of people is a people who proclaim Jesus unshakably, is that the kind of gospel you proclaim? I, I pray that it is. So the last point then for us this morning is the, this unstoppable church of Christ is a community of people who obey Jesus unselfishly. A community of people who obey Jesus unselfishly. You see here in the text, uh, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In this text right now, what you're about to see is the difference between a disciple and a dissident. Somebody who believes and trusts and follows and somebody who goes their own way. Even if it's for an instant, you're going to see it right here in the text. And if you know this section of Matthew, you already know where I'm going. So, spoiler alert for you. But I want just for a minute to focus on these disciples. They've been walking with Jesus for I don't know exactly how long now. Many of them have given up everything. Remember, some of them just dropped their nets. They were in the middle of mending their nets. They left their nets. They left their father. They're following Jesus. They left their livelihood. They left their family to follow this this homeless man who can do amazing things. 
and at first they don't know that he's the Messiah. This is where they have to give that confession, right now. So up until this point, he is just a miraculous man, maybe even a prophet of old, who God is doing wonderful things through. And then he tells them, they might have, or they just heard that he is the Messiah, right? Peter just made the confession. It was confirmed. Jesus says yes. And now he tells them, these men who have given up everything, he tells them, don't tell anybody. Can you, even, can you even understand what that would be to them? I, I mean, these, these men, Jewish men, from the time they were bouncing on their grandfather's knee, heard the story of how one day God would deliver their people. They longed for and looked forward to. Every Sabbath, they were in synagogues. Several times a year, they would perform feasts and sacrifices. And now the Messiah is here. And, and, and now you're telling me I can't tell anybody this? And what you're telling me is that everything that we've been taught and that we've thought, that the way that you're going to come in riding on your, your stallion and, and coming in power and you're going, to, you're going to be the ruler of the people, you're going to bring us back to a King David type of ruling, all of that you're telling us that really what you're coming to do is to suffer and to die and you still want us to follow you? It's between a disciple and a dissident because Peter has a moment of dissidence. This is what he says. He says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus, man. Like, does that not blow your mind? Are you kidding me? So Peter took him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Even in his rebuke, he has to recognize that he's Lord. This, Peter's crazy. Anyway, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan, and I bet you that hurt. He said, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here's the difference between disciple and dissident. Where's your mind set? I mean, is your mind set on the things of God, or is your mind set on the things of of man, a community, this unstoppable church of Christ is meant to be a community of people who obey Jesus unselfishly. The fact of the matter is, Jesus came and suffered purposefully. That was his goal to suffer and die on the cross for your sins, for my sins. Hebrews 12 2, enduring the cross and despising the shame, it says. That Jesus told them right after they knew, yes, I'm the Messiah, and here's why I came to suffer and die. And so where in your life are you tempted most to be a dissident, not a disciple? Is it when Jesus says, allegorically to us, I think maybe, or maybe specifically to you, sell all your possessions, give your money to the poor, and then come follow me? Or are you too bound up with the things of this world? Or is it with the other guy who said, let me first go and say goodbye to my family, whom I love. I, I want to say goodbye to my family. In fact, Lord, they're a little bit more important to you. Let, let me do that, and then I'll come to you. Are you too caught up with family? Are you too worried about persecution? Because right after this, he's going to say, anyone who wants to come after me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Again, we can't fathom what that means to these men when he said that. I guess the best description for us, to some ideology would be, you have to take the electric chair, just like I take mine. Or you have to take 
the uh, shot of death, whatever it's called. Not, listen, I'm not political. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the killing death thing when you're, you know, whatever, that thing. Yeah, euthanasia. Or you have to get waterboarded until you die. Or something, I don't know. I think we lose some of the value in Christ's words because we haven't seen people crucified. and They would have. Like, they would have been walking around and outside of the town, they would have been crosses up there with people in whatever stage, either just died and they're about to get taken down or they're still writhing in agony or they're still pounding the nails in this guy's hands and about to raise him up. And they walked past that. Kids walk past that. And Jesus is saying, pick up your cross and follow after me. We lose some of that in our marshmallow life. So Jesus came and suffered necessarily, and then he just simply asks, are you going to suffer willingly? Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What did they do to sacrifices in the Old Testament? They killed them, and they poured their blood out. So he wants you to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Philippians 3, 7 through 10. But whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. You see, this true church, Jesus' church, is made up of a community of people who obey Jesus unselfishly. Vidi. Uh, Venerable Vidi says this, Christ surrendered himself that he might win you as a kingdom to God the Father. In a like manner, do you give yourself that you may become his kingdom? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to teach us how to live in his kingdom. How will you participate in that kingdom? I pray that it would be unshakably and unselfishly, and unashamedly, and unambiguously. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, his church is unstoppable because he is unstoppable. We all want to be a part of something bigger, This is your opportunity. Today is your invitation. If you aren't a part of Christ's church, then I want to say today is your day. I want to close by this text from David Platt. He he said, Matthew 16 should cause each of us to ask the following questions. Have you died to yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Are you following Jesus? Have you found your life in him? Are you eagerly proclaiming the good news of the kingdom as you eagerly await the return of the king? This is what it means to be a disciple, 
And this is what it means to be a part of Christ's church. So the fact of the matter is, is that the church of Christ is a community of people who know Jesus unambiguously, confess him unshakably, and who obey him unselfishly, or maybe in a better way to say this, the church of Christ is a community of people who know Jesus personally. They confess him powerfully, and they obey him purposefully. Christ's church is unstoppable. And the best news you've ever heard is that he wants you to be a part of it. Now, before we pray, before we pray, I want to recommend some reading to you. I want to recommend to you a reading in John 17, 1 through 26. This is known in the heading of your scriptures as the high priestly prayer. The reason I want to recommend this to you is because I want to ask you the question, how does this prayer bring hope to you as a participant in the unstoppable church of Christ? So that's John 17, 1 through 26. If we could, I'd like to ask us all to bow our heads, close your eyes, and I want to give an invitation. I I want to give you an invitation and ask you, don't stop short today of entering into the kingdom of Christ. Don't stop at the gates. Don't stop at the end of this message. Instead, I just want to give you an invitation to receive Jesus and to enter into his rest even right now today. And so if that's you this morning, if you want to be part of God's unstoppable kingdom for the first time this morning, I just want to ask you to pray with me. You pray in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud, but, but pray along these lines. My God in heaven, I recognize I am a sinner. I see that I cannot receive or earn forgiveness. There must be a gift from you. God, I recognize I am not worthy of this gift. And yet, in the boldness of the sacrifice of your Son, I ask for you to receive me. I ask that I would be a child in your kingdom that you would forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from them and give me a renewed heart and a renewed mind and help me from this day forward to follow you. That you would grant me your Holy Spirit, that you would make your word come alive to me and that I would be a member of your unstoppable kingdom. It's in your name I pray. Now everyone as you may have prayed that before. Let us all then in unity pray all together. You can pray in your hearts with me. Savior, we pray that you would come and extend your kingdom over all the world. We ask that you would sway your scepter over all hearts. We thank you that you are making us individually and corporately into your temple. We ask that you would honor us by making us an instrument of good in your hands. Lord, save us from pride and from sloth, our two greatest enemies. Keep us and preserve us. For we know that we are erring sheep, and it is in the power of your hand that we put our trust. Upon your strength we rely. Hold us by your right hand and never let us go. We praise and give glory to you, our Jesus, our unstoppable Messiah, 
founder and perfecter of his unstoppable church, of which we one day will be gathered to you to see your unrelenting glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's, let's sing a song.